HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. Hey there, HRN listeners. This is Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears. I know that news about COVID-19 and the coronavirus has made a lot of people nervous about getting sick. This collective unease has already had a big impact on our restaurant and food communities, especially in New York's Chinatowns. We hope that now more than ever, our listeners will join us in supporting restaurants and the hospitality industry at large. Many of the restaurants we love are small, independent businesses. That means that even one or two bad weeks can put them in jeopardy of cutting staff, limiting hours, or even having to close for good. As long as we're still able, we should go out to eat and support our favorite restaurants. I think it's also great to remember that hospitality professionals are really good at hygiene and food safety practices. Long before there were guides all over the news about how to properly wash your hands, they were already experts at hygiene. Guests' health is tantamount to successful hospitality in any restaurant. And even if you don't want to go out, you can still support restaurants by ordering delivery, buying gift cards, and giving them some extra love on social media. What better way to handle a crisis than by supporting those in our own community? If we don't support them now, they might not be there when this crisis is over. Join HRN in supporting restaurants during this time, especially our friends in Chinatowns around the country. Thanks for listening. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you from Woodbury Kitchen in Baltimore, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So like everything else in the world right now, today's episode is a little different. One, all of Heritage Radio and full-service radio shows are recording remotely, so you may notice the quality of the audio isn't the same. Uh, I'll explain why I'm in a restaurant in a second. (laughs) Um, But first, let me just say, we are all in the midst of this pandemic, and it has upended most of the world as we know it, including our food system. The ways in which COVID-19 will continue to affect farmers, farm workers, restaurants, hospitality workers, grocery store workers, and really all of us who simply need to eat and care about how and what we eat is totally unknown. So, frankly, uh, on a daily basis, I'm vacillating between feeling totally overwhelmed by this whole thing 
And then feeling driven to use the platforms and skills that I have to help bring you stories of how farmers and others in the food system are impacted. So I wanted to just mention that at Civil Eats, where I'm a senior reporter, we are publishing many stories related to coronavirus and the food system. So if you're interested in more in-depth reads, please check those out at civileats.com. And today, since it's my first episode recording remotely, I thought the perfect person to have on the show is the person sitting next to me right now, my partner in life and now my partner in social distancing, Spike Jurdy. Hi, Spike. I'm so glad I didn't have to help you with the last name. <laughs> Am I the first person to ever interview you that knows how to say your name? Exactly. All right. So... I have a lot of questions for you, but um, I just want to make something clear, which is that I'm not just randomly talking to my boyfriend about coronavirus because we live in the same house and we can't go anywhere. Um, <laughs> if you don't know Spike, he was the first and only chef from Baltimore to win a James Beard Award. He is a restaurateur who, through his restaurants, has contributed to building a regional food system in the Mid-Atlantic in incredible ways. He knows and works with pretty much every farmer in Maryland. Um, anything else you want to add to that account of your illustrious resume? I think that's a great place to start um, because of the way that this um, pandemic is affecting all of us. Um, and, f you know, obviously for us, it, it's, it's, our, it's our teams here at Woodbury and at Artifact and in D.C. at Arake's Progress. Um, but also we are hearing from and working with um, our incredible community of growers to try to deal with what's happening. Right. And we're going to talk a lot about that. Um, but for people who, before we get to that, because I mean, that's really the only thing any of us can really think and talk about right now, right? It's just everywhere. Um, but for, for background first, so for people who are not in this part of the country and don't know Woodbury Kitchen or Arake's Progress, explain a little bit about what you do and the philosophy behind your restaurants. So Woodbury opened in 2007, and, and we talk about the fact that we opened not as a concept, which I think is kind of a tired uh, trope of the restaurant business. Did I say concept? Uh, I don't know. You didn't. Oh, okay. uh, I just, it's a distinction I make because we opened with more of a question about how we were going to feed ourselves. And that quickly came, you know, it was, for me, it's important to kind of talk about the fact that Woodbury didn't open as a, quote, farm-to-table restaurant, but as, as, a, as a place where we were kind of asking and trying to answer some of the bigger questions about how food works um, in this region, um, in this country, and on this planet. And our, our, the, pro the process here has been, you know, answering that question over the last 13 years. What's the, the question of how we're going to feed ourselves? Yes. And it turns out it does involve a lot very much a, 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 local, a locally focused approach with uh, farmers and makers uh, of all kinds. Um, um, but what does that look like, like on the menu at Woodbury? So at Woodbury, over the years, we've been able to kind of focus things in to the extent that we don't really use any, any products that aren't from local growers. Right. Um, that's a deliberate kind of economic engagement with our, with our food system here. Um, because we understand, I think, the importance of returning value to growers. Um, every dollar that we spend, um, we try to get it, we try to direct that dollar back to someone who is a farmer or, again, a maker, you know, somebody who's making wine or cheese. Um, 
um, so that they can be, so that they, they can continue what they're doing, so that they can improve, and so that they can be successful. Right. And most people that hear about what you do, a lot of what comes after you explain it is, wait, but no lemons? Right. <laughs> That's a part of it. No lemons, no olive oil. Um, we phase black pepper out, um, which is, all of these things are unquestionably delicious, and I think that just uh, is kind of a, attests a, a to our, our commitment to looking at things in a slightly different way, in a slightly broader way, um, and especially including that economic um, piece where growers get paid and they, they keep doing what they're doing uh, because without them, none of this is possible. I forgot to say one other thing that you do um, that is relevant to this conversation, which is that you have a live event series called Origins that also runs as a podcast on Heritage Radio. So we should tell people that in case they're listening and they want to listen to something else. How many have you done? 33. And those are available on Heritage and very proud of the fact that we, you know, have helped drive this conversation and um, some of my favorite Growers, uh, people that I've been working with now for longer than a decade are, are, are included. All right. So we're at Woodbury right now, and we're you know, maybe two of five people in the building. I, I don't, get, paint us a picture of what's going on right now. Very strange. You know, Woodbury uh, at this time, just after 5 o'clock on a Wednesday, this, our service would have begun uh, our team would be ready, uh, standing behind the bar, standing on the floor, uh, waiting to greet guests. Guests would be coming in, um, and none of that is happening right now. We do have guests pulling up right now, or I guess more uh, accurately, they'd be called customers because we're, we've pivoted to doing a curbside pickup of, of meals uh, that we're providing for folks uh, here in these very first days of uh, what I guess you could call a shutdown. Yeah. So... What is going to happen to your restaurants? And I mean, there, there's been so many articles recently and, and other chefs and restaurant owners speaking out about um, what the long-term effects of all this are going to be. I mean, it's obviously way too soon to to know, and we don't know how long it's going to last. And But what are you thinking about in terms of the effect this is having on your staff, um, the business, and just like where, how to get through this, essentially? Um. It's, like most other folks at this point, I don't have an answer to a lot of those questions, and I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know, and I don't think any of us know um, how long this is going to last and how bad it's going to get. Um, So we are taking it day by day because the situation is changing that rapidly. I think one of the most surreal aspects of, of our experience here, and I think this, it's similar for a lot of folks, is that we saw this coming from a long way away. And what do you mean? We saw the, the pandemic developing across, you know, from China and then gradually make its way to other countries and then to the United States and then gradually become something that we were confronted with here in, in, in a real way. And now that it's here, it's, it's worse than any of us, I think, expected it or, or at least um, anticipated it being and we're in the thick of trying to figure out what it means for us for our teams and for our growers yeah and everyone's talking about how um 
Like, I guess a lot of people don't think about the economics of restaurants that often, especially, you know, restaurants that are small businesses. Um, And now suddenly people are talking about that and thinking about it. And one thing that you see a lot is, like, um, people saying how slim the margins are in a business like this. And because of the way you do things, um, they're even slimmer, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there is a... It's it's an aspect of this uh, of this approach that I've come to embrace over time. Uh, earlier on, I would have f- tried to find ways to kind of deflect the reality that we're putting more money back into our food system by paying more for the ingredients that we use. Um, I, I, for some reason, I felt it was important to put a different face on this, and and now I've come to embrace the fact that we are paying more, and we should be paying more to farmers for what they do and what they provide, and that absolutely ends up on our bottom line, which, as you've pointed out, means that our margins here um, are a little slimmer. And I think for us, when things get tough, they get tough, as, as for other places, pretty quickly. Um, the nature of restaurants, I think, is that they, um, they need to operate to survive. We are like sharks, and sharks need to keep swimming. And when something happens and when an es- a restaurant stops operating, uh, things become very difficult very rapidly. It's incredibly labor-intensive uh, undertaking to, to operate a, a traditional restaurant. By traditional, I mean a, a place where people come in and sit down and, and, and have orders uh, taken and, and food cooked for them. Uh, maybe one of the most inefficient things you can think of when it, when it comes to the labor that it's required. Um, but a beautiful thing, and, and I, think, I, think, I still think a thing that has a place in our society. Yeah, I... I was thinking a lot today about just how, you know, restaurants are kind of the first thing to be be hit by this. I, I think like all, it seems like all industries are going to be hit by the impact of this, but restaurants seem to be the first place. And and there's something so upsetting about that because it's like their restaurants are also like the way you do things returns value to growers, and but they're also just the center of communal life. And like that's sort of the thing that is we can't have right now it's like communal life this is not a question I don't know where I'm going with it I was just thinking about it and it made me really sad (laughs) me too I mean I think that's you know part of what I think is special about places like Woodbury um, is that this is where life happens for a lot of folks and I've always felt that Woodbury was at its best when it was a place where people are having these experiences um, that are not unique to this place but we create the you know it, for Woodbury it was a, it's about food but I think in a lot of in a different way than it is at other places and so it was the experience the families sitting around and friends groups of friends or whatever sitting around a table enjoying the kind of food that we do from growers here there was just something about that that is I think difficult to replace or replicate elsewhere yeah it's like I mean a lot of things have moved online but you can't you just can't move that online and I think it's not going to take long for people to, you know, for that to start to express itself. People, even in this day of, of you know, a lot of things, social interactions happening um, online, it's not going to take long for that need, I think that human need to, to start to express itself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Um, we're going to talk more about farmers. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. 
When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully US-grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. US Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com. Okay, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here talking to Spike Jurdy about um, his restaurants and the impact the coronavirus is having on the restaurants and, and all of us and the food system. Um, you work so closely with a lot of farmers. That's, I mean, you depend on farmers. Everything you do is sort of based on what you get from farmers. Right. Um, what are you hearing right now from the farmers that you work with in terms of how they're doing amid this crisis? One of the most satisfying things about what I've done and (laughs) the work that I've been doing for the last decade plus has been seeing how our farmers here have evolved and, and grown and just improved and uh, one aspect of that is that um, we have tremendous amount of fresh local produce now here. You know, we're kind of tail end of winter um, that we would never have had 10 years ago, say. And that what I'm hearing from growers right now is that that's piling up, essentially. Um, farmers that had production going in hoop houses and high tunnels and in greenhouses are now have no place to sell that. These are growers that we work with and that, who work with us and, and other restaurants. Um, all of us are closed down, and they don't have, um, they don't have relationships or um, uh, outlets, other outlets for it. Some have, have, are trying to kind of restart CSAs that they may have let go uh, in favor of doing restaurant sales. Uh, that's what I've heard. And, but basically, our conversations are like, how can we start to get this machine running again in a different way that doesn't involve guests coming in and sitting in the restaurant. Um, and one of my main motivations is so that we can get these growers, get their products out there to folks that want it, and we can get people, get growers paid. Right, so have people pick up produce here as well? Yep, yeah. we're talking curbside markets, and there, it's, it's great because there are a number of people here, I know in Baltimore and in D.C. that are thinking about this. Uh, that I'm not the only, by any stretch, the only one have recognized, that, you know, that this is a, an acute issue with what's going on and that these farmers, um, you know, one of the things that I, I, I think about when I think about this business is how closely, you know, our interests and our, our fortunes are kind of aligned when it comes to Woodbury Kitchen and the farmers that we work with. And we've seen a year like 2018, which was devastatingly difficult uh, weather-wise for farmers, and we suffered as well. And now we are all suffering again. Yeah. And some of those farmers are are kind of pivoting. Like you said, they're doing bigger CSAs, trying to get more CSA signups. And then 
also are doing home delivery, which is, you know, they're, they're doing it because, like you said, they have all this produce that's piling up and they want to get it to people. They want people to be able to eat the, the food. But, I mean, there's a reason farmers don't do that generally, right? Because it's incredibly inefficient. Right. And, like, how will they, like, to me that just seems like how will they, how will they even execute that and, and stay afloat? It seems like it would be really difficult. It's a sign of desperation already. Yeah. And I think that's what, you know, I feel in some sense that the hospitality industry across this nation and certainly here in Baltimore and Washington, uh, where we were hit kind of first. And I'm not in any way questioning the decisions that were made. I think that restaurants should have been closed down. I think that was a good call. I think it probably could have come earlier and it could have been more... Um, clearly handled, but when the call came, it absolutely makes sense to all of us that that's what needed to happen. Uh, but now we are in this in this situation, and you know it's confusing to me that a lot of the talk that w- that I'm hearing now out of Washington is about a stimulus package, and I'm not sure what there is right now to stimulate. Um, we have folks that whose needs are immediate, and um, and they are in, already you know facing very difficult circumstances because their livelihood has been cut off. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can we talk about Omer? Sure. <laughs> so, well, I was just thinking, like, about farmers who are affected by this. And, I, I mean, so you have this, like, incredibly unique relationship with an Amish farmer in Pennsylvania. And um, can you just talk about the phone call that you had with him? Because I think, like, it's it's just such an illustration of, how some farmers are, especially in his community, are cut off from what's happening. And then also, you know, he's trying to start up this new agricultural business, essentially. And that's, that's going to be really difficult. Absolutely. Right in the middle of this, he's trying to get an uh, on-farm dairy processing operation going. And um, it's, it's probably, he's been working on this for about a year and this is in direct response to another thing that you've done a lot of work on, coverage of, of the, how difficult um, the dairy industry has become in this country. And uh, so Omer's a, a farmer in Lancaster County. Um, he's a diversified farmer who does uh, dairy and eggs and grains, and all of which I buy from him. And I think I've almost got a second career now as the Amish News Network because he also gets a lot of his information from me, and you know, which is... To illustrate that he is, he doesn't have the usual access to the internet and and to to television news and, and things like that. And so a lot of what he's hearing are are from his network of of neighbors and also truck drivers and things like that. And a lot of the information, as as I was talking to him, you know, wasn't good. And he didn't understand that we were shut down. He he was confused about whether he was going to have to split his family up because. There's 12 people in his house, and he had heard um, that the government was saying that you could only have 10 people together. So it's, it's scary. You know, what we deal with is, is scary, and I think it's, it's magnified or exacerbated by the fact that he's up there um, responding to these things as well, but without the kind of the, the steady flow of information that we have, some of which, you know, not all of it's reliable, but we certainly are much more um, plugged in than he is. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah, you mentioned the dairy. I mean, the dairy industry is, was already in just complete, like, free fall. And he, he had this opportunity to turn it around to do on-farm processing, which would al- allow him to capture way more of the food dollar. Um, 
milk a dollar. Yes. <laughs> and it's just, it's, it's so frustrating that it's like, you know, it's, it's just at that point where maybe it would have worked and, and this is hitting. And, and it, there are many, I think there are, that's a great example of, of what's going to happen is that, that things that were, were just starting out or hadn't fully established themselves, you know, great things, necessary things, um, are going to be derailed because of this. And obviously there are, there are a lot of us are going to pay a, a big price, but I, it's, it's, it's sad to think of, of th- things like this. I, and I'm not saying that he doesn't get it going. Um, he's shown an incredible um, amount of, of determination to stay with it through some really tough... Um, he's had a tough go of it with, it, with getting inspected and, and, and some of the other... getting his system up and running. So I hope, I'm still hopeful that it will happen, but, it, you know, again, it couldn't have come at a worse time. Yeah. So... You have been a sort of tireless advocate for local food for a long time for many reasons. Um, How has this whole situation impacted your thinking about that? I'm I'm hoping, and again, this is, um, you know, I guess if you were going to capitalize, you could say this is day three. I mean, this is really the third day that we've been fully immersed in in a crisis. um, that we ha- that we need to kind of figure our way through, um, and my hope is that this will help us understand, you know, some of the value of what a strong, ro- robust, diverse local food system can mean to us. Um, I think in the best of times, great local, nutritious food is something that we can't do without. I think in the this t- at this time, it, it may be something even more than that. It may be something that we can depend on when other sources of, of food aren't dependable. Yeah, I just was reading something right before this and that an agricultural economist wrote, and he said, um, he had this one co- small comment, and it said something like, I've always been such a skeptic of local food systems, but now I kind of get how <laughs> this could be a good idea because international shipping is going to be disrupted, and... And it's funny, it's like, it's not necessarily the, the reason that you have, you know, advocated as much for, right? Like, it, it's not, you wouldn't have said, like, well, what if we can't get food from elsewhere before, right? Right. F- food security is definitely not at the top of my list. But I, I've, I've learned, I think, over time to try to be inclusive when I think about, I came, I would say, if, 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 if it was one thing that got me really focused on doing on working with food in this way, it, it was envir- an environmental concern, specifically around the Chesapeake Bay, but then more broadly around climate change and, and a lot of other issues. Um, but now I, I'm the last person in the world that's going to discredit other concerns, including, uh, in this case, food security. Um, and I think I'm really hopeful that as we pivot away from um, kind of a a traditional restaurant model with guests sitting at tables here in, 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 at Woodbury Kitchen towards something else for as long as, as we need to, that the, our local food system will kind of rise to the occasion, if you will, and, and we'll see the value of it, I think, even more clearly than we may have in the past. I think that's a good note to end on. <laughs> Thank you, Spike. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. 
I'll see you next week. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.